Uh, let, let me let me jump in. It's again, I, like I said, it is our last week in this multi-ethnic church series, and I want to make the case this morning that Antioch is the earliest model that we have in the early church of a multi-ethnic missional movement, and that we actually derive a lot more of our 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 self-understanding of the church, the, the world globally understands its it, it receives some of its highest self-understanding as the church not from jerusalem but from antioch uh, uh, and that antioch i think be, actually becomes at this point the center of uh, a god's movement in those early times from antioch so far the jesus movement itself had proven effective in the rural in galilee and nazareth it had proven effective in the urban in jerusalem but what about the cosmopolitan? Would the movement of Jesus, the message of Jesus, the life of Jesus, could, was it actually transcendent of any place, people, language, culture, context? Was it actually adaptable? See, Antioch was a crossroads of culture and trade. It was a, it was a few miles uh, east inland uh, from the Mediterranean Sea, just on a, on a river. And it, had, it, it, it was on a crossroads of two popular trade routes, both the river and a north-south trade route. I mean, you could say it was, it was, Antioch was right off the bay at, at the intersection of two interstates or something like that. Uh, that Antioch was just close to a major body of water and there was a small river passing through it and there were... Two major trade routes passing through it. I have no idea what that would feel like for us. Um, Antioch was the third largest cosmopolitan city at the time but in, in the ancient Near East world behind Rome and Alexandria. It was Rome, Alexandria, and Antioch, this massive cosmopolitan city. And after the scattering, you know, when we studied, there was the, the martyrdom of Stephen followed by a massive wave of persecution of the church in Jerusalem which caused the, the church in Jerusalem to scatter all over Judea, Samaria, and to eventually the ends of the earth. And in their scattering, that's now when uh, uh, last week we studied from Keisha, we, we wrestled with this, this vision that God gave Peter about Cornelius, the Gentile, and God saying, don't call uh, unclean what I've called clean. And Peter wrestling with this new thing that God was doing, including all of humanity in, in covenant promise. And in that scattering, uh, some unnamed missionaries, right after, this is immediately after that story of Peter and Cornelius, some unnamed missionaries arrive in Antioch, and they do not wait for permission from Jerusalem to reach out to Gentiles. They do not need a vision from God to reach out to Gentiles. They do not wait for an angelic visitation to reach out to Gentiles. They simply obey the Great Commission. And this is part of what we wrestled with last week was like, why did Peter need this big vision and why did, the, why did this whole thing need to get orchestrated when God said in the Great Commission and in Acts 1, he made it pretty clear we're going to the ends of the earth here. Uh, uh, and it's important to realize some people, like Peter, there were some people who needed a little extra supernatural revelation to really get that, but not everybody did. There were some people who got it right away. And they're not waiting on permission from any Jerusalem council, some person with power, to do the thing that God already asked them to do. And they're not waiting on God to confirm it through the supernatural. He said it. Let's do it. 
And what springs forth from that obedience, that radical faithfulness, what springs forth is a multi-ethnic, globally collaborating missions agency. Part of how we know their multicultural makeup is the, is the makeup of the city around them. It's a, it's a, it's a cultural melting pot, Antioch. It's got, it's got both the Greek diaspora and the Jewish diaspora. I mean, they're, they're every single culture and ethnicity of that time in that region would have presence uh, in Antioch. So we could, we could try to assume from that that there would be a bit of a multicultural church there in, in what they're doing. But, but the real way that we know that, that it's a multicultural church, is in Acts 13, when just for one or two verses, Luke did, uh, uh, names and describes the leadership of that church. Just give me one second. You don't have to like turn there, go look there, whatever. Acts 13.1. Now in the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers. There was Barnabas. There was Simeon called Niger, who was of African descent. There was Lucius of, Ni- of Cyrene, who would have been of Greek descent. There was Menaean, who had been brought, brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, who would have been Jewish, and Saul. This is like each person actually represents, you've got a little bit of bicultural, you've got, you've got African descent, you've got Greek, you've got uh, a straight, pure, like Jewish in there, you've got, you've got a, a little bit of every uh, uh, pocket of people that has been touched on so far in the New Testament movement. The only way that, that that amount of people, that representation and leadership would be possible is if that representation is actually in the community. You see that, right? I mean, from, from whom are we pulling leaders? From the community. So the community is actually this multicultural, uh, uh, multinational group of people in Antioch. They, but they weren't just multicultural. They were globally co-laboring in their domain of concern and in the use of their resources. And we see that at the end of this text where they hear a prophetic word. Agabus, all these, the, the, these prophets come down for, from Jerusalem and there was probably all kinds of like spiritual energy signs and wonders happening in Antioch. And so prophets come. That's what happens. And, a, and a Agabus delivers this word saying, pretty soon there's going to be a major famine in this region and it's going to hit Jerusalem hard. And they, the church in Antioch, decides by faith, the famine hasn't even hit yet, but they decide by faith we're going to start collecting, amassing resources, not for ourselves, but for the church in Jerusalem. And the famine would have actually reached Antioch. It wouldn't have been as devastating, but it would have reached them too. So they would have been concerned, what does this mean for us? But they don't collect for themselves, for their own survival. They collect for the church in Jerusalem. A church that was actually questioning the validity of their salvation. The Jerusalem church sent Barnabas to go check on this. Go look into this. Eventually, Paul and, and Barnabas and Peter have to go back to the, to the Jerusalem church and try to convince them that these people are actually saved, even though they're not like getting circumcised and they're eating whatever meat they want or whatever. They're actually like the Spirit is at work at them. And this church, which is having their, their own salvation questioned, chooses to actually raise a massive amount of, of resources and efforts to help the people questioning them for a famine that hasn't even started. It's going to come a few years down the road. The, the concern that they have is that actually surpasses their own selves, their own city, their own church, and they see themselves as partners in a global church. 
and that their resources aren't owned totally by them, but their resources are owned by the global church, and we have to give them to where they need to be. But they weren't just multicultural, and they weren't just globally co-laboring. They were a missions agency. In that same text in Acts 13, they end up, uh, it says that while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting with that group of leaders, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So after they fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. The church in Antioch was a sending agency, and they, and they sent some of their best people. They sent their best to do what God had called them to do. They sent their best because they felt responsibility for the mission of God in the whole world. And when the best were sent away, Paul and Barnabas, Paul has this, this like a really draining experience in Athens in Acts 17. He has this like really, one of his worst experiences on his missionary journeys, he has this, this experience in, in Athens. And he needs to recuperate, he needs to rest and be restored from that experience. Where does he go? Where do, where do the weary missionaries go to be restored? Paul doesn't go back to Jerusalem. He doesn't go back to like where he's, it feels like it's familiar and home and where his crew is and where he can. He goes to Antioch. He goes to Antioch to be restored, to rest, to heal from that experience. He goes to Antioch. So they don't just send their best people, but they be, their, their, their church, their environment was actually restorative for the weary in their community multicultural, globally concerned and co-laboring, a missions agency, rest for the weary missionary. Antioch is a picture of what we've talked about the last three weeks. Three weeks ago, I came up here and, and we were wrestling with the, the, the Hellenistic widows in Acts 6 and we talked about how multi-ethnic church requires not just a commitment to interpersonal reconciliation, but a, an attention to structural power and representation and collaboration and leadership. And two weeks ago, Melissa up here talking about uh, uh, Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch talked about how our God is a global God with global concern and love for the whole world. And he's not just going to wait for the church, but he's going to actually scat. He's going to send the church to the whole world and he's going to bring the whole world to the church motivated by his unrelenting love. And that the church actually finds itself as a partner in that global work. That we, we somehow carry responsibility and receive from the global church as a partner in submission to our global God. Last week, Keisha talked about how every culture and ethnicity needs to bring the beauty of their God-ordained culture and ethnicity to the table. Bring it. Bring it to the table. That everybody, need, everybody needs to have a voice and, and God-ordained culture and ethnicity, which helps us see the fullness of God and his kingdom, needs to have a place at the table of our fellowship. What happens when a church takes seriously a call to representation, collaboration, reconciliation, culture and ethnicity, the whole world? I think you wind up with something like Antioch. You see, when you encounter a global God and acknowledge the image of God in all people and you seek to uphold the beauty of every culture and ethnicity, I think you wind up with something like Antioch. And while this vision of being, it's not a vision of doing, it's a vision of being, while this vision of being is both, pers both personally and communally seems complex and, and multifaceted and complicated, guys, it's really just one vision. 
It's really just one vision. In its most simplest form, it is a desire for heaven. A longing for more of heaven in our midst and more of heaven in the world that we're sent to. That's what we want. And all, there's all these little intricacies in that and complexities in that. And it's multifaceted, but in its simplest form, guys, we want heaven. We want it here. We want more of it, more of it, more of it. It's never enough. And we want to co-labor with God to build heaven in the places he's called us to. This is the implication of that prophetic revelation given to John uh, uh, that we see uh, in Revelation. And that we've referred to Revelation 7 a few different times over the last couple of weeks, but I just want to take a minute and just read that to you, Revelation 7. And this isn't John, this isn't John like sitting in, in, in exile on the island of Patmos thinking, writing down thinking, what might heaven be like? What do I think heaven should be like? Wouldn't it be cool if heaven was like? This is Jesus ushering John into a vision of how eternity will be, and John giving his best attempt at putting words to that. His best imperfect attempt to try to describe what that looks like. And in Revelation 7, he says this, After this I looked, and there was before me a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. They fell down on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen, praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. That's a benediction. That's a doxology. This is the, this picture, John being, being given, given uh, uh, this, this glimpse into eternity by Jesus and seeing a crowd of people that's uncountable, but somehow being able to decipher in that community that there's, there's, there's people, there's human beings from, that, that are clearly from every tribe, tongue, and nation worshiping God and saying this in that language, worshiping this in that language together. That's the vision of eternity that we're given. This is the eternity Jesus won for us, the eternity we've been redeemed for, the eternity that we run to. And it sounds beautiful. It sounds glorious. Some of you are probably like, that sounds great. Let's do that. That sounds awesome. The problem is, I don't think any of us actually want heaven. I think we've been hardwired our whole lives not to want that. And we could say our whole lives we want heaven, but oftentimes it's our own version. It's not that version. And over time, we're being made new, changed, our desires transformed, our hearts, our souls restructured to want that vision of heaven. You see, someone can't say, someone cannot say, I hope the demographics of my neighborhood change over time, and in the same breath, I want to go to heaven. You either want one or the other. I went to a, a um, in this, this unincorporated Tampa uh, uh, area, there's like, something like $2 billion that have been allocated to, to re renovating and changing this area over the next five to ten years. And that money's being kind of planned and stewarded by, by uh, um, you know, big 
big pocket people, and those people sit on a few different committees, and I happen to be a part of one or two of those committees, and every time I go to one of these meetings, and they're talking about what they're doing to this area, and the plans over the next 10, 10 years for this area around the mall, and unincorporated Hillsborough County, they keep saying, we really, we we're really excited about the demographics changing. We're really excited about the social landscape changing. And the immediate question is, be specific. Who would you like to come and who would you like to leave? Oh, just, you know, generally, like, the, just things, just generally, things need to change. Because if, when you, you hear people be, like, abstractly racist and then you ask them to be specifically racist, it's hard to answer the question. <laughs> I don't, I don't know. Like, I just, I just meant generally, like as a platitude, like the better businesses would be nice, like, uh, you know, whatever. You can't say I hope, I, and, and I'm really trying, one of these guys on that committee is a, a believer. I've had coffee with him. I, I'm really walking with him. I, I love him. And he just keeps saying that. And I keep talking about, man, it's kind of what you're, you follow Jesus, you look forward to eternity, and yet you're excited about this becoming less like eternity. What is that? Guys, someone cannot be a white nationalist and look forward to heaven. You either want it or you don't. And you can't say white people are annoying and exhausting, and at the same time, I can't wait until heaven. You either want it or you don't. Some white folks are going to be there. I get it. I am exhausting sometimes. You want it or you don't. Someone can't say, I look forward to stronger immigration policies that help America become more culturally distinct and preserved, and at the same time say, I look forward to heaven. You don't. No, you do not. I think there's a... There's a, there's a, a, a there's a whole lot of followers of Jesus who, who would say with their lips that they look forward to heaven, but when they get to the gates, I think they might be disappointed by who's there and by the lack of clearly defined neighborhoods and places to be. Right? It's important to admit that we've been hardwired in our world to have specific reservations against multi-ethnic community, and so God secures for us a future that we do not actually want. This is the complexity between justification and sanctification. If we can go there just for one second, I'm sorry, hold on. That God justifies our position. He he declares us by his righteousness, imputes that righteousness on us, and declares us positionally righteous and worthy of heaven in a moment, secures our future of heaven in a moment. But then he's got to spend the rest of our lives convincing us it's a good idea. That's sanctification. Because when we become redeemed and justified, our desires don't immediately switch to holiness we still want things that are not holy. We still want things that are not going to be in the kingdom of God. And we have a life for God to change our desire to want heaven. God secures for us access into eternity and then spends every moment of our lives persuading us that it's good. 
And I think that's why Jesus instructs us with this simple prayer when the disciples say, Jesus, when you pray, what do you pray? How should we pray? What should we say? Teach us about prayer. He says, when you pray, just pray like this. Our Father, holy is your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And I think when they received that, they said they probably thought, and I, and, I, and I for most of my life have probably thought, yeah, you're right. We want what you want in this world. But I think the subtle logic of that prayer is that you're asking for the kingdom to come in you as it is in heaven. God, would your kingdom come on earth, me included, as it is in heaven? Would your will be done in me as it is in heaven? And I think we spend 90% of our lives praying that prayer and we don't know what we're asking for. We do not know what we're asking for. And then we learn to love what we're asking for. And so we, like Antioch, we aspire for heaven in our midst, knowing that we don't fully all the time want it. That we want room for the personal and public expression of every culture and ethnicity at the table of this community. Guys, that's why we sing songs in different languages and different styles. And maybe, maybe you've been around for three or four months and that's happened a few times and you're like, what's going on here? I'm just going to kind of womp and not pay attention and wait for, wait for another Hillsong song to come on and then we're back in it. We're back in it. Here we go. Guys, this is the logic behind singing songs in different language and actually experiencing different styles of worship. It's because it's, it's a way to actually invite heaven into our midst. And, and when, when a, different, a song of a different language comes on, it's not an opportunity for you to disengage from worship. It's actually an invitation into kingdom worship. It's an invitation to stand in solidarity with one another, in community with one another, in celebration with one another, and to receive the cultural gifts of those in the room. To receive more of God, more of the kingdom from those in the room. I still think Hillsong will have one or two songs in eternity. It's not, they're not bad. There will be some. It will just be a whole lot more. A whole lot more. Guys, that's why we create platforms for trainers from every tribe, tongue, nation, and gender. We try to create spaces for people to teach and to train and to share the story and to offer a little bit of expertise from every tribe, tongue, nation, and gender without trying to curate or script their content because it's not just what they, the, the, the content they bring to us that's the gift, it's who they are that's the gift. It gives, it gives us a taste of what God is doing in them, through them, in the uniqueness of their cultural imprint. And that's why we encourage communicators in this stage to speak as much as they can in line with who they are. Don't you code switch. Don't you, don't you try to be someone you're not. We want you. Not just what you're saying. We want all of you. And we want people from as much as possible, every tribe, tongue, and nation, influencing and teaching this broader community that we, that we have. It ushers us into really good, healthy moments, healthy intercultural disruption with one another. That way, over time, it's, it's not just Keisha having no idea what Tal Talladega Nights references are. If you were here last week, talking about people keep making jokes about Talladega I've never seen it. None of my friends have seen it. I don't know what's going on. But in the same way, it's important for white people to have to drive home and Google things like reclaim my time. Or, or, or sit down, be humble, 
Um, or, or there, there's, uh, I was just trying to categorize three or four times I've had to do this, and these were two of them uh, uh, that I'll share with you right now. Because, guys, we don't sit back. We don't sit back and wait to be sent to heaven somewhere else and build something different than heaven on earth. But we actually co-labor with God to build the kingdom on earth. And when we intent, when we, when we decide to build something intentionally, ethnically homogenous, we build something, not the kingdom, and I fear our labor is in vain. Every intercultural disruption in multi-ethnic church begins to restructure the soul toward wanting heaven, loving heaven, wanting human flourishing, Wanting what it is that God describes, life that is truly life, as opposed to death. A thing that looks and feels like life, but is not life. And so we, like Antioch, aspire for heaven, more and more of heaven to be in our midst. And we also, like Antioch, commit to building heaven, co-laboring with God to build heaven in the world. And there's a few different ways they do this, but I don't want to encroach too much on the rest of Acts, and we'll let those things come when they do. But at least in this text, what we see is Antioch being a partner in the global church in submission to a global God. And I just wanted to take this little line at the, at the, about, about this famine and how they were thinking about that and how they were planning their resources around that. I just wanted to take that for a moment uh, uh, to, to, if anyone had forgotten, to maybe... Uh, explain some of the logic behind our budget, uh, uh, because I do think there's there's uh, I've I've personally struggled uh, 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 several times with our 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 ability to pull off the things that we pull off. It just never it always feels like we're underfunded. It always feels like we don't have enough. And uh, the, the immediate troubleshooting step that we could take is what about this half of the budget that we give away? <laughs> Couldn't we just not do that? Uh, uh, we're, we're having a hard time just ta- taking care of what's going on internally. Why don't we just, why, why do we do this over here? And I think that, that conversation can, can, can come up. We can discern that often. But I just think this is, the, guys, this logic, this discipleship ethic exposed here by the Antioch church is exactly why. It is exactly why. Because our resources do not belong to us. They belong to God, and God actually cares for the global church, not just us. And our resources have to be, the way we use our resources have to be done in discernment and in submission to God and the needs of all the relationships we have around the world. And there's a whole lot of ways I'd love to spend money here. Oh, believe me. There's a whole lot of things I'd like to fund here. There's a whole lot of things I'd like to do here. And it always feels like we're always scratching for something. But understand, uh, 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 what we're doing is we're deciding we have needs. We have real needs, guys. We have a lot of needs. But my goodness, all these global partners we have, they have needs too. And we've decided not to have an ethic of underground first, make underground great again. But actually, we, we, actually, we actually care about our resources everywhere. We care our, there, there is no boundary to our concern. We actually, our resources have to submit to a global God who cares about everything. And what these Antioch Christians are deciding is like, 
we have these amount of resources, and we're going to have needs when this famine hits. But their needs are greater, and so we actually think these resources we have belong to them. They're not ours to spend. Guys, can you imagine what would happen if we actually had that ethic with our resources as givers? I mean, there's times when I've been in like, I don't want to do this too much, but just for a moment. There's been times when, I, when it's like I'll be in some kind of consultation with a church, and they're deciding to spend $80,000 to repaint the lines in their parking lot. And I'm kind of thinking, I'm not sure if that money belongs to you. When you have relationships with churches all over the place who you, who you could build an entire church, you could build eight churches for that amount of money. They don't even have a facility to meet in. And you want better lines? Whose resources do these belong to? And so, yeah, I've got needs. Antioch has, has needs. We have needs. But, guys, so does the, glo- the global church that we stand in solidarity and partnership with. So sometimes think, I think it's um, uh, every once in a while we have a, like a tectastrophe in here. I'll just give you, let you guys into my soul a little bit. Did I just, do you guys not know that word, tectastrophe? I call it tech. So something goes wrong, like a TV shuts off or the air conditioners are the one lately, like they're just crazy loud. Or, or like little things go wrong. You guys understand if we used our resources on ourselves, we wouldn't have any of that. We'd be fine. We'd be totally fine. You would not be distracted any Sunday morning by anything. We'd have like the best of everything. And when, guys, if you could just join me in doing this, when I hear the air conditioners going crazy or I see a TV blow out or my mic, the batteries on my mic run out and I've got to switch to a handheld in the middle of a sermon, I take, they're like sacramental to me. Those moments are holy for me. Those moments are like every time it's like a reminder. That's right. That's how we use our resources. And if I've got to change to a handheld in the middle of a sermon, so be it. So be it. Nine-volt batteries are ridiculous nowadays. Three, four, five dollars. <laughs> This is why our budget's the way it is. It's why we use our resources the way we do, because we have global responsibility and global perspective, and then we we are in submission to a global God that we have to answer to for every dollar. And we don't give to the world from our leftovers, but we always sacrifice things we would like to do, resources we would like to spend, because we think those dollars belong to another. The worship team would come up. I'm just going to close with this final thought that we, we do aspire to be a network of churches, a network of microchurches that chase heaven together, chase a, a network-wide, city-wide expression of heaven together. We long for heaven in our midst, and we're committed to co-laboring with God to build heaven in our world. I thought it was interesting this week when I was reading this text that in every significant movement of the Spirit in the life of the early church, so far in Acts, that movement has always been attached to a name, to a person, to a character. Peter was the one that preached a sermon. Barnabas is the one that first gave a field. Seven men were selected all by name to be the first deacons of the church. Stephen was the first to be martyred. Peter and Cornelius the first to discover God's new movement. Saul was converted. Barnabas was the one sent. And yet this is one of the first moments in the life of the early church where a significant movement, a history-altering, history-shaking movement happens by an unnamed people, anonymous people. 
the founders of this Antioch church are the first and of the very few nameless history-altering leaders. They did not require permission from Jewish leaders. They didn't need a vision from God. They didn't wait for a vision from God. They did not wait for an angelic visit. All they had was the heart of Jesus, the vision of Jesus, and his hand, the hand of the Lord. And I think if we corporately are inspired by the vision of Antioch in church the way that I am, it means I must aspire to be like those anonymous leaders from Cyprus and Cyrene. Loaded with a vision of the kingdom of God without a care in the world for human permission. Without a care in the world for my own life or my own glory at the end of that thing. This is how the kingdom comes. When our hearts find their home in the heart of Jesus and when our eyes find their sight in the vision of Jesus and when our hands wait for his hand. And it was those kinds of leaders who sparked and made possible this world-changing, multi-ethnic, globalized community. So this morning as we come to the table, we come inspired by a view of heaven. And at the same time, awareness that there are some times where our hearts actually don't fully long for and want the heaven of Jesus, the kingdom of God. And so this morning we actually come to the table remembering that God purchased for us the right of entry to heaven and yet he is always completing in you the work that he started to actually desire for human flourishing, to desire for that kingdom of God when heaven kisses earth. And so come this morning in humility to receive that sacrifice, that gift of Jesus and come away inspired by this vision of being, this vision of discipleship, this vision of the way to follow Jesus in multi-ethnic community. And in the same way that we do every week, we engage in this prophetic act of coming to the body and blood of Jesus, coming to table fellowship as a whole community and proclaiming to the world the death and resurrection of Jesus until he comes. On the night he was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it, saying, this is my body broken for you. When you eat it, you eat it in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup and poured it out, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, shed for the forgiveness of sins. And when you drink it, you drink it in remembrance of me. And so, underground community, this morning, when you're ready, the elements given for you. <laughs>